This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Thanks for downloading our Christmas episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'm joined this fine, fine... I'm going to guess chilly in the Midwest morning uh, by Mr. David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how, how are you doing this chilly morning? Oh, pretty decent. Uh, just, well, getting my day started and getting ready to give a slew of exams today, starting at 8 o'clock this morning. So, yeah. Oh, man. That'll be fun, fun. Till Daddy takes the T-bird away. All the perils right. of being then, yeah. a full professor. <laughs> You're like a dog with an old sock, man. You just won't <laughs> let that one go. And that dog with that old sock is Mr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in Minnesota. Michael, how are you doing this morning other than jealous? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing well. It's not chilly here, though. I mean, it's 35, but that's uh, fairly warm for Minnesota in December. All the snow <laughs> melted yesterday. I'll be. Yep, so. <laughs> well, on the blog, folks, you'll notice that there isn't a whole lot of activity here lately. That is because we are, as these gentlemen have just said, wrapping up the semester, which means that we have very, very limited time. I will say that there is a book review coming pretty soon. Uh, I got a review copy of Pete Rollins' new book, Insurrection. I've got about 15, 20 pages left of it to grade. So by the time this goes live... There might be a review of that up. Here's Other how you know that, it's the end of the semester. Gilmore just said grade instead of read. <laughs> What's that now? Oh, gosh, did I really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello, Freud. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, you should be thankful Freud didn't inflict anything worse on you than that. Right? Yeah, there you right. go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I, I only, so have, I only have about 20 pages left to have sex with my mother. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wow so anyway uh you can continue to expect the weekly bible post you can continue to expect uh occasional links posts i i actually do have a links post ready to go for this friday so uh we will be back in a somewhat more active form on the blog but right now is just a bad time of year good listeners it is a good time of year, though, to think about uh, things like ghosts, and that's what we're going to be talking about today on the show. We're going to be talking about Charles Dickens' famous story, A Christmas Carol. Uh, it is one of the cornerstones of modern Christmas. As I mentioned a couple years ago on our Christmas episode, the first Christmas movies were not films of the nativity, but they were adaptations of Charles Dickens, so uh, he is as much responsible for modern Christmas as anyone Today, guys, I'm going to try to, in my question, stick to the text of the story. If you all want to talk about movie, TV, other adaptations of it, that is great. Uh, but I'm going to be pitching you questions largely that deal with the text, all right? So here we go. Uh, Michael, I'm actually going to start talking about this story, not at the beginning of the story with the dead as a doornail <laughs> that everyone seems to be familiar with, but rather at the moment when people come to Ebenezer Scrooge's shop and try to solicit a donation. Uh, when he responds to these people who are gathering money for the poor, he says something about surplus population. 
Uh, and whenever I say that phrase, I can simultaneously hear Alistair Sims and George C. Scott and Patrick Stewart saying it. Uh, but Scrooge take a few McDuck, minutes, Michael. Cartman. Yeah, there you go. Michael <laughs> Caine. Take a minute to rehearse this scene briefly and then talk a little bit about Thomas Malthus and the economics that Dickens is critiquing by putting it in the mouth of Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, you and then while you're yeah. in the neighborhood, t- take a minute, if you will, to say something about what the ghost of Christmas present later on in the story has to say about such economic theory. Well, you get, um, screw it's Christmas. It's Christmas Eve. Scrooge is working in his office and you get these two guys coming by to collect for the poor. And I always think of them as a uh, moly and water rat from the wind in the willows, because the Disney version is the one I'm most familiar with. <laughs> they come by. They come by and ask, ask for money for the poor. And Scrooge, in typical Scrooge fashion, says, "You know, um, why should I give my money to the poor? Don't we have poor houses for them?" And uh, the the two guys say, "Well, some of them would rather die than go to those places." And Scrooge says, "Well, if they're going to die, let them go ahead and do it and decrease the surplus population." It's one of the most famous lines. In the story, it shows up in every adaptation that I've ever seen, except maybe Scrooged. I can't. I don't. I don't think yeah. that line actually appears in Scrooged. But all the faithful adaptations tend to do that one. Um, as you mentioned, it seems to be a reference to Thomas Malthus's an essay on the principle of population, which was first anonymously published in 1798. Then he put out a quite different version a few years after that, and he revised that all the way up until the sixth revision in 1826. Uh, a Christmas Carol comes out in 1834, so this would have been relatively fresh on people's minds. Um, it, I should also point out that sixth edition, very influential on Charles Darwin, uh, right. In a lot of ways, an essay on the principle of population is a response to Enlightenment optimism. Malthus is a reverend, and he is rather pessimistic, especially for 1798. He says that nature has certain natural checks on population growth, and the most notable of those is a limited amount of food. Um well, animals can't resist sexual urges, so animals are forever reproducing at the highest rate they can. The only thing that curves their growth is starvation and natural predators. Human beings don't really have natural predators. So all we have is starva- starvation and self-control. So he recommends that human beings exercise self-control so as not to run out of food for everybody. He says that people should practice sexual abstinence. They should get married later. The bottom line is that there's a certain amount of goods in the world and that there are too many people and that the there being too many people means the resources are going to get depleted. Thus, there are people who never should have been born in a statistical way. Now, he's not Jonathan Swift. He is not sarcastically or earnestly suggesting we just start killing off people. But he is saying people, people need to think about how many children they're having. Um, Incidentally, uh, an essay on the principle of population originally had a section on natural theology, but that got dropped in later editions as it became much more a book of economics uh, rather than anything else. Now, you bring up the Ghost of Christmas Present. The Ghost of Christmas Present, of course, at one point takes Scrooge to the Cratchit household, and they, he, uh, that's where he sees Tiny Tim, who is on crutches and cheerful and all the things everybody knows Tiny Tim is. Uh, <laughs> and Scrooge, Scrooge is worried about him, 
And he says, is he going to die? And the ghost of Christmas present says, well, if he is going to die, he should just go ahead and do it so as to decrease the surplus population. And at this point, Scrooge um, Scrooge feels guilty and looks at the floor or whatever else he does. Now, um, it, it seems that Dickens is saying that Malthusian economics make a lot of sense as long as you're not thinking of human beings as individual human beings, as long as you're thinking of them as just kind of ticks on a chart, uh, mm. bare numbers. Mm. But the the existence of Tiny Tim suggests that Malthus is a little too cold-hearted in his approach. Am I missing anything, Nathan? No, no, I, I think you hit the high points there. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating that everyone knows that line uh, but, you know, so very few people know that it has an antecedent that Dickens is taking a run at. And I mean, that line is in, I, 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 I really don't know of an adaptation that doesn't have it. It's interesting what lines get carried over from one to one. And, and that's not one I would have expected. Oh, sure, oh, sure. It's a, it's a great line. It really is. It really is. And I mean, it, it does paint Ebenezer Scrooge right from the outset. Even if you've got an actor who is generally a likable person, it paints him as you know utterly cal- calculating in his view of humanity. You know the the people out on the street are just like the coins on his desk; they are numbers to be counted. Mm. So anyway, so I, go ahead. So I do want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate and say that it doesn't just view individuals as ticks on a chart, but as Oh, organisms functioning within one big, large environment. Um, David, you know, that was two drawing... episodes ago. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> but, he, but, you know, it, it does have its origins in talking about human population in terms of talking about animal populations. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. About e- e- ecology. Anyway. The, the point is oh, sure, still, yeah. it, 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 it still refuses to look at people as individuals. Right, oh, right. It's it's all fine. It's all fine and good to say there's too many people in the world today. It's a completely another thing to look around and say, well, these three thousand people should be exterminated. Right, yeah. and exactly. then it's a third oh, thing to say, I'm willing to do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. I'm, not, I'm I'm just kind of reaching back two episodes and saying some sometimes maybe a focus on individual particulars that doesn't you know look at it all within the system. Maybe sometimes that can be a good thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that's definitely Dickens' that's approach to it in response to Malthus. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. All well, right, David, I, 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 want, yeah, I want to move on to Jacob Marley. So, David, when a Dante lover like me reads the Marley scene, uh, I automatically think that Dickens has brought purgatory to earth, or at least the circle of the avaricious. Uh, I fear, though, that I might be neglecting some early Victorian ghost lore. So talk a bit about uh, Marley's ghost. And on the way, tell our listeners about ghosts and gravy and what a bad bit of beef can do to a miser's sleep. <laughs> um, well, th- this was this one was kind of interesting because there's so many different uh, connections with the the the, the different uh, kind of a- a- allusions within the story. Uh, I was not really sure where to start, so I, I started with the first thing that. Uh, the the first thing that seemed particularly notable to me, which was the the chains, mm-hmm. um, you know the bells. Uh, this is the Christmas Carol, the first stave. Uh, the bells ceased as they had begun together. They'd su- they were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, as if some person was dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as dragging chains. 
okay, so you know Dickens has, you know he's he's stepped out of the story and said this is you know this is a narrative convention, <laughs> uh-huh. um, that that uh, you know that Marley has changed. Um, I was a little surprised at how old this narrative convention was. Um, this is a, this is a, a pretty old ghost story um, about quote a large and roomy house which had a bad name so that no one would live in it. Uh, in the dead of the night, a noise resembling the clashing of iron was frequently heard, uh, which, if you listen more attentively, sounded like the rattling of chains, distant at first, but approaching nearer by degrees. Doesn't that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Immediately afterwards, a specter appeared in the form of an old man of ex- extremely emaciated and squalid appearance with a long beard and disheveled hair, rattling the chains on his hands and feet. And that is from a letter of Pliny the Younger. Um, uh, from holy yeah cow. yeah from just yeah just a few decades after Christ, um, one of the earliest uh, ghost stories. There's uh, another story like it in the the uh, the life of Saint Germanus, uh, who lived uh, around about in the 400s A.D. He encounters a ghost in a haunted house just like that, shaking and rattling his chains and all the rest of it. Uh, by the time we get to Dickens, the 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 the, the chain rattling ghost is such a convention that it's something that literary critics regularly make fun of whenever they have to review a gothic novel. Huh. So so it's um, like uh, Fenimore Cooper's uh, Broken Twig. Yes, it's it's like that. Um, well, this is this is Tobias Smollett reviewing a gothic novel named Claremont. We have also the usual apparatus of dungeons, long galleries, clanking chains, and ghosts, um, and a profusion of picturesque description, which, though it displays some merit, serves only to interrupt the narrative. <laughs> anyway, and, and there were a boo-coodle more just like it when I was uh, searching for clanking chains on Ebo. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was a convention that, that uh, was... Uh, actually roundly mocked by the time uh, oh. we got to Dickens. Um, in treating the ghost, um, as soon as uh, Marley shows up, Scrooge uh, asks him, what do you want with me? And uh, who are you? What do you want with me? That again, that's a very, very old con- uh, convention. Um, the ghosts stick around in classical lore. Um Ghosts like the one that shows up in Pliny the Younger uh, stick around because they have unfinished business, and they need the living in order to finish their business. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and the, that, that's the case in Seneca's tragedies as well. Right. Um, and this got kind of attached to the notion of pur- purgatory um, in mm-hmm. the Christian era. Uh, there's even an, a, a short Arthurian romance, uh, The Adventures of Arthur at the Tarn Waddling, in which... Uh, the ghost of Guinevere's mother is encountered uh, who basically uh, is is suffering in purgatory because she'd committed adultery and wants to talk to Guinevere. And basically what she taught, what she tells Guinevere is to always be repentant and to be charitable to the poor, Hmm. you know, and pray for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, uh, and, and this is something that continues on. We see it in Shakespeare. You know, Yeah, yeah, I charge thee speak. Um, 
Horatio says, you know, when he's trying to get the ghost to spill the beans, why are you haunting? It shows up in Castle of Otranto on more than one occasion. Uh, if they are spirits in pain, we may cease their suffering by questioning them, says the heroine Matilda. Anyway, the, all of that, very, very conventional. But also conventional is the skepticism. Um, for this, we can blame uh, a number of books written by uh, various, well, frankly, Protestants <laughs> uh, who rejected purgatory, and therefore uh, there's no good reason for ghosts to exist. The souls of the damned are in hell. The souls of the uh, hold the souls of the damned are in hell and can't leave. The souls of the blessed are in heaven, and why would they leave? Right. Um, so what are ghosts? Ghosts are souls in purgatory, uh, uh, souls who, by definition, have unfinished business and need the living to help them with their unfinished business. That's what purgatory is all about. Mm-hmm. Well, when you dispose of purgatory, what's a ghost? Um, a lot of earlier Protestant polemics against ghosts basically say uh, they're demons. But then, uh, beginning, oh, I guess with uh, Anatomy of Melancholy, you start to see more and more of uh, a tendency to get to to look for natural uh, kind of explanations, and that culminates, uh, I'd say, uh, about uh, 14 years before. Uh, Christmas Carol with Walter Scott's letters on demonology and witchcraft mm-hmm. in which he basically um, plays the Scooby-Doo gang with every story <laughs> of magic and ghosts and all the rest of it uh, that had been told before that. He just debunks all of it. Um, but I found this 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 little bit just because it it, it could almost be a summation of of this of uh, what happens in a Christmas story or sorry, a Christmas carol um, a remarkable instance of such an illusion was told me by a late nobleman. He had fallen asleep with some uneasy feelings arising from indigestion. They uh. operated in their, in their usual course of visionary terrors at length. They were all summed up in the apprehension that the phantom of a dead man held the sleeper by the wrist and endeavoring to drag and endeavored to drag him out of bed. He awakened in horror and still felt, the dead grasp of the corpse's hand on his right wrist. It was a minute before he discovered that his own left hand was in a state of numbness, and with it he'd accidentally encircled his right arm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. Oh goodness! Have you guys ever had weird dreams well, and- because you you ate something bad? Like that? Ha- that's a Staple. Oh yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't think that's ever happened to me. I mean, that but was like I, every third episode life, of the though. Cosby Show. <laughs> <laughs> was Any clear. dreams he's pregnant and giving birth to a boat or whatever? Yeah, and there was another one where, like, the Muppets show up because he ate something right before he went to bed. I, that's just never happened to me. So it's not something that they just completely made up, is what you're saying? Like, this is something. It's an actual thing that happens to people. In real life? No, no. This is this is this is a convention. I, maybe it happens to people in real life. Well, Gilmore I, said I, it happens I, I don't to know. him. Oh yeah. If yeah. I if I overeat at supper, I mean, I can almost guarantee that I'm going to have weird dreams. Mm-hmm. But it's been it's it's been an explanation for where bad dreams come from for a very 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 long time, and it has to do with your hum- humors and such. If you live in the Renaissance. 
I don't right. know what the mechanics of it are these days because, frankly, I don't get, you know, non-Galenic medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, I didn't find a whole lot of uh, early Victorian ghost lore, mostly because it seems to have been pretty, pretty well tapped into stuff that came before it. They loved ghost stories. Uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was in uh, the sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, had come out. Uh, you know, just a, a few years before Christmas Carol, and that was right. that was pretty popular. Um, so yeah, it, they they were popular. The conventions were well known. Uh-huh. Nothing that happens in the story, um, except maybe the 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 that long stream of of misers flying through the air, um, which I don't remember that from any of the movies. Um, actually the Patrick Stewart version, if I'm not mistaken, has misers flying through the air. Okay. Well, clearly I need to see that one because I thought that (laughs) that was an amazing, amazing scene. And I, I wondered why I'd never seen that one before. Anyhow, uh, other than that, it's, it's, it's all the kinds of things that people would have expected from, from a ghost story. All right. Very good. Very good. Well, Michael, we shouldn't give the impression that Dickens simply hates businessmen. After all, one of the most lovable characters in the whole story is Fezziwig, uh, who appears in the Christmas Past sequence. Uh, what sorts of things does Dickens do to mark off Fezziwig from the old Scrooge? And what, what hope is there for a man of commerce in this particular literary world? I'm going to do my best not to call him Fezziwig, which is my natural inclination. <laughs> <laughs> um... Dickens has a complicated relationship with capitalism in some books, most notably Hard Times. He appears to be critiquing capitalism pretty hard, but then you think of um, a book like Great Expectations, where a rich man takes care of Pip. You know, so it's not that having money is necessarily a bad thing in Dickens' world. Uh, He doesn't really seem to be anti-capitalist, strictly. And the problem with Scrooge, in fact, is not that he's a capitalist, because he's a miser. He doesn't even spend the money. He just holds on to it. And that, that seems to be the, the Dickens' biggest problem with him. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, he doesn't even enjoy his own life. But if you, if you look at the end, he's not, um, he's not called to get rid of all his money. He's called to spend it, and not just on other people. He's called to spend it on himself. And and mm-hmm. that that's following Fezziwig's motto because uh, model because we see uh, we fe- we we meet Fezziwig. He's just in the, the book for a couple of pages, which surprised me um, because he he does loom large over the ghost of Christmas past. Uh, we see him. He's having this lavish Christmas party where everybody's having fun, including a young Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, Scrooge points out to the ghost of Christmas past that Fezziwig doesn't even spend that much on the Christmas party. He just spends a few pounds, but he makes everybody happy, and that seems to be the point. Um, There's nothing wrong with capitalism, but as a capitalist, it's your job to get that money circulating, to, uh, to spend it on other people, to bring joy into the world, to, u- to use the money for good purposes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in his way, Dickens is a consummate capitalist. Right, right. Mm. And, of course, you know, I, I, but, but, go ahead, David. Uh, I, 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 well, I, 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 I had never noted Fezziwig before, honestly. Uh, I mean, he, he was, the fact that I, I'd never really thought of him as an important character before I read 
uh, before I read the story. I don't know why. Maybe I just wasn't watching carefully. I was like, oh, look, there's Fozzie Bear. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 w- I was really struck by the role he t- uh, by the role Fezziwig took as as a leader of human community. Yeah, not just as as the guy who was kind of bankrolling the social event, but the guy who was also the life of the party. Right. Everybody um, loves him. I, 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 yeah. Right. Anyway, and, and, he's, and he's known not primarily for his acumen as an accountant, but rather for his skill on the dance floor. And I, <laughs> and I, I always thought that was interesting that, you know, uh, Scrooge, whenever other characters talk about him, either they're bad mouthing him or they're talking about what a genius he has for accumulating wealth. But Fezziwig, although obviously he's got the means to throw a Christmas party, the only thing anyone ever says about him is how great a dancer he is. <laughs> the dancing accountant. <laughs> yes. Yes. I <laughs> Delightful. Um, well, David, I, I moving on to, or I guess moving back to the Christmas present. Cause we've already talked about him briefly. Um, I want to ask you for, to dwell for a moment on probably the second best known character in this story, tiny Tim. I have to admit when I read the text, which I try to do every couple years, uh, what I love most about, the text mainly because no movie ever does this uh, is the fact that tiny Tim is not immune to a little bit of Scrooge hatred. Uh, (laughs) You know, he is (laughs) in the movies. He usually stops people from saying bad things. (laughs) Yes. Yes. When actually in the text, it's Bob Cratchit. Who's the only one who will say nice things about him in the Cratchit household. I realize Fred does later. Uh, but I'm, I'm probably being too mean here, David. So talk a little bit about tiny Tim. Uh, what, what sort of character is tiny Tim in the text of the story? Okay. See, I, I, well, if I'd ever read the Christmas Carol before a couple of days ago, I honestly don't remember it. Okay. I, 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 I think, I think I remember going to read the Christmas Carol once long, long ago and seeing, wait, this is really long. and then giving it a miss um yeah if you if you if you watch a lot of the adaptations um you you could make my mistake and think Fezziwig's not terribly important you could also think that tiny tim just like spends half the movie on screen yeah um that, that I was actually kind of surprised at how at how little that is borne out by the text itself. There isn't really a whole lot of tiny Tim. And what you get of him, he's really much less of a character than Fred. Oh, or even yeah. you know, or even Bob's more. wife or even Bob's Bob's son Peter. I mean, Peter's much more of a character than Tiny Tim. Mm-hmm. You know. Um but Tiny Tim seems—I don't know—he seems more of a more of a symbol than a than actual f- uh, character. Um, I've—I uh, was always a little impatient with him in the films because he's always so maudlin, you know. Well, he's a wise <laughs> child too. Sweet. Yeah, and I—I I hate those. <laughs> um, even if I was one, but I know I was insufferable. Um, but. Uh, there's this one little bit that confirmed all of my worst suspicions of tiny Tim. Um, when, uh, let's see all, all this time, the chestnuts and the jug went round and round and by and by, they had a song about a lost child traveling in the snow from tiny Tim, who had a plaintive little voice and sang it very well. Indeed. Because of course he did. <laughs> that would, 
that would be what he saw. <laughs> really? All right, you're a tiny crippled child who constantly talks about Jesus. Um, do you really need to also sing songs about little children lost in the snow? <laughs> you're already the most pitiful creature. Um, ah. uh, but uh, yeah, but I had I had to kind of step back because you know Dickens is clearly doing things with Tiny Tim, and 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 I need to not be cynical about him. Um, so. I'm, and instead of being cynical, I'm just going to be hackneyed and say, okay, I'm going to just say he's a Christ figure or something. Um, but uh, that's uh, – yeah, I, I think that actually is kind of the case, um, except with the twist. Um, there's the uh, the bit where Bob Cratchit's uh, carrying him home, and he says that uh, – uh, Tiny Tim gets these strange ideas. Uh, he told me coming home that he hoped that the people saw him in church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant for them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk in blind and see. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know yeah. my favorite thing okay, about right. Tiny Tim? Yeah. When he dies in Scrooge's future vision, and I know we're coming to that, but when he dies in the future... Uh, in the in the adaptations anyway, Cratchit's always laying the crutch on, on the grave. Like, why would you do that? Why would you put the crutch on the grave? Why would you just throw it away? <laughs> because is, the, is, because is, the kid was man. Is there a, is I, there, I thought I I thought I had no sentimentality, guys. But is there is there a more emotionally manipulative? <laughs> you guys are scene? cold. <laughs> Wait, See, you, I was going to say, why like, doesn't he keep it? can beat Scrooge with it. Oh, I guess Scrooge is dead, too. Gilmore, do you like Tiny Tim? Well, I mean, I I, I don't have the antipathy that you guys are showing. I, I mean, I, honestly, I thought I'd be the cold-hearted one here, but you guys are going to town. So, so when you get to the scene David just described where Tiny Tim says it's good for people to see a crippled child on Christmas because it'll make them think of Jesus, uh, you, you don't audibly groan? Uh, I don't audibly groan, no. I think it's a little bit awkward, but I... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to hang out on that for a little bit and excavate why exactly it's awkward. Okay, go ahead. Um, why is it that Tiny Tim thinks it would be a good idea for people to see him a cripple on Christmas Day to remind them of Christ implicitly remind them of Christ who made lame beggars walk and blind men see he's not been healed. He still has his, uh, you know, he, he still has his handicap. He still has his, you know, his, his ailment. Um, he hasn't been healed. So how is it that an unhealed ailment is going to help, help people remember Christ who healed ailments on Christmas day? Um, but if you if if you go to his imagined death, the the scene of that in, in Christmas Future, and then see you know the way they talk about it, particularly the way uh, Bob Cratchit talks about it, um, they jest about Peter or was it Peter? Yeah, getting a girlfriend, and then 
Bob says, yeah, 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 maybe you'll get a girlfriend and leave. But wherever we go in life, we always need to remember Tiny Tim, and we need to be better because we remember him, and we remember how patiently he he endured through life, how cheerful he was, how peaceful he was, and we we need to be kind. We don't need to fight. We need to be cheerful. We need to endure because we remember that that's what Tiny Tim was like in life. So I'm going to play I'm going to play my David's crazy card and just say that Tiny Tim is a Pelagian Christ figure. He's the Christ of the good example. Oh, I I I would say he's not a Christ figure at all. I'd say yeah. he's more hagiography than Christ figure. It's, well, it's, okay. It's that See, same I'm sentimentality crazy. people attach to people with disabilities all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you, 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 even so, uh, I mean, they're, I, they're, I so, they're so brave. You know, in that moment, that's what we're, you know. I, you know, I think that's what Tiny Tim wants to, us to remember about Christ is not Christ healed, but there are still crippled people. Go out and help them. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, I, I can yeah, grant that. Okay. I can grant that. You know, the 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 good ex, the the Christ of the good example. Um, mm. I, I I think. I find Tiny Sam just completely insufferable. As I find all wise children insufferable, as I as I find all <laughs> noble noble cripples insufferable. I mean, it's just I don't know. All right, well, fair enough. I, I, I suppose I just hate Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, there, there were there were actually moments where I got sniffly, but it was more in the Cratchit's reaction to Tiny Tim. Tiny oh, Tiny sure, Tim, sure. yeah, he Tiny Tim himself occasionally would just he would just hit my gag reflex. I'm like, ah, too much, <laughs> right? Um, maybe it wasn't too much in, but, in 1834, though. I mean, maybe, maybe it was enough. No, that's neutral. true. Well, yeah, I'm not and, the target. <laughs> and Michael, uh, just turning to one of our favorite books, I mean, it's kind of like the funeral of Ilyushenka at the end of Brothers Karamazov. I mean, I, I, I still cry every time I read it, not because I was particularly attached to that character, but because of the way that the staff captain's universe has fallen apart with his death. But that kid mm. felt like a real kid to me because he was... I, I can't say the word I'm, I was I was going to call him. He's kind of a jerk, right? I mean, he's not he's not the oh, sure, perfect sure. angelic child the way Tiny Tim is. Even if Tiny Tim does make fun of Scrooge a little bit. <laughs> other than well, that, I mean, that's a, like that, I said. That's what I like about the text of the story is he hates Scrooge just as much as everyone else does. I mean, the only really thing that's lacking to me is that he doesn't call him a painted sepulcher or something. <laughs> Nice, nice. But, but but I mean, Anyhow. really, other than, other than that, there's nothing about Tiny Tim. I mean, he he he's as human as the angel you put on top of your tree. He's he's. I, I just find him completely dull, flat, monochrome. All right, all right, fair enough, fair enough, man. Um. Well, anyway, because Michael might need a visit from him, let's uh, let's turn to the third spirit, Michael. <laughs> also, I, I think Tiny Tim should just die so so as to decrease the surplus population. There you go. Um, I I actually, Michael, want to talk about an omission rather than an inclusion in the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, and that omission is the afterlife. Uh, when the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come shows up, he doesn't show. Scrooge as a purgatorial spirit lugging chains around London and 
you know, being unable to help the poor. Uh, but instead, he focuses on how living people treat the event of Scrooge's own death. Now, literarily speaking, I mean, what's the result of that unexpected shift of focus? And while you're in the neighborhood, uh, what do you make of Scrooge's conception of fate and responsibility for one's own fate? And while we're still in the neighborhood, because this is the spirit that fascinates me most out of the three, I'll admit, um, am I making too much out of the parallel between Scrooge's final moments with the spirit of Christmas yet to come and Jacob wrestling with God in the book of Genesis? And if you say I am, I can accept that. So take on those questions in any <laughs> order you want. Go to town, man. Man, you take uh, you take Grubbs to task for calling Tiny Tim a Christ figure, and then you call <laughs> the ghost of Christmas present the angel of the Lord, or the ghost of Christmas yet to come, the angel of the Lord. Um, I, like David, had never read A Christmas Carol uh, before, b- before you made me. <laughs> um, and I, I was surprised by much how faithful the adaptations are. Um, most of the adaptations take yeah. dialogue straight, oh, except there's there's one point that's that's different in a lot of them. And I'm thinking of the Mickey's Christmas Carol, which is at the end of Mickey's Christmas Carol, Scrooge falls into his grave and it opens up and becomes a hell mouth. Yeah, that doesn't happen. That in the terrified story. me. <laughs> yeah, me too. In, in fact, um, it's kind of. <laughs> You know, kind of still, still, uh, still at the back of my mind. Uh, but that that doesn't happen here. There's no, there's there's no hellmouth. There's no speak of eternal punishment. As as Nathan says, there's there's only how how people are going to talk about him after he dies. And it makes sense. I mean, how do you appeal to a miser? You you will you appeal to his sense of self because that's really all he has. So the vision. Mm-hmm really is less about the future. It's, it's less about how people are going to talk about him after he dies and more about how people think of him now. Because, of, I mean, the, the great advantage to, to seeing how people talk about you at your funeral is uh, people are going to say what they actually think. Um, the the vision, by the way, also shows that uh, gravesite scene of Tiny Tim. So, I mean, it, the vision's not entirely selfish. But again, it's very much connected to the present. Um, the important thing is that none of it is set in stone. Scrooge is able to change how people think of him. Uh, of course, he does change how people think of him. Um, Marley talks at the beginning of the story about how Scrooge's chain is being forged. And that it, yeah. it was once the same length as Marley's and now it's seven times as long or whatever. Presumably, right. if seven, he had, Seven years worth, yeah. Presumably, if he acts more like uh, Fezziwig and less like Marley, that chain will be destroyed link by link, um, and and these horrible visions he has of the future are not going to come to pass. Um, as for his vision of fate, Scrooge says that men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. So, there's a fate of sorts, but you make it. And you can change it if you haven't gone too far down the wrong road. Presumably, there would be a point at which Scrooge had been Scrooge too long to ever not be Scrooge. Okay. Um, th- that's what I gathered. Now, I-, I have no idea what you're getting at with Jacob wrestling with God. Certainly, this is uh, certainly this is Scrooge's dark night of the soul. So uh-huh. cer- certainly, this is his crisis of faith, his turning point. This is this is where he he's pulled outside of himself. But I don't. I don't really see the parallel between Jacob uh, Scrooge and the, and the ghost and Jacob and the angel. 
Oh, okay. Well, what I had in mind was the very, very end of this scene where Scrooge actually takes hold of the spirit's cloak and refuses to mm-hmm. let go and says, tell me I can change my fate. Tell me I can change my fate. I see. But of course, Jacob is grabbing the angel's cloak and saying, tell me your name. Tell me your name. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's pretty different. Um, but yeah, it is. It yeah, is. you're right. He, he probably is invoking that now that I think about it. What do you think, David? I mean, am I making too much of that? Uh, the, the the idea that he wants to to rest um, to rest an answer um, from this you know this figure figure of the spirit worlds you know uh, I, I, the, those those are parallel those are parallel okay. all right all right of course I also have the you know that passage from from Walter Scott that I read you guys in mind um, I think part of the fact that he grabs onto the ghost of Christmas past is so that at the beginning of the next chapter, the ghost of Christmas past can dissolve into the bedpost. Ah, gotcha. And him grabbing onto it serves that waking up slash the ghost goes away function in, in which he finds out that he's, he's been interacting with this other bit of his bed bedroom landscape. Uh, uh-huh. um, which to me, Honestly, that that that's that's what throws up my skepticism is is that one little moment, and I start I start to wonder did this any of this actually happen? Ah, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> does, but, does it matter? But I, I I I don't want to poke that. Does it matter? Yeah. Um, it does it does to me because I want to know what kind of ghost story I'm reading. Oh, <laughs> Sleepy Hollow or or, or not? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Anyhow. And, you know, which Shakespeare critics version of Hamlet. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, and and the idea that that in 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 some way he takes uh, after it's over, um, Scrooge certainly acts as if he's rested a concession. Yeah. From the ghost of, of Christmas yet to come. Uh-huh. Um, he 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 behaves as if he's gotten that second chance that he asked for, right? Um, it, it's that seems to be the way he takes the fact that he wakes up, and it had all happened one night. He seems to, you know, he he treats it as if, hooray, I've gone back in time, and now I do get to do things over again, right? Um, right. Anyway, in the same way that that Jacob is, um, in a manner of speaking, uh, successful. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the other thing, and I mean, I'm again, I'm probably overreading, but the fact that he wakes up and he no longer has to be Jacob anymore, he no longer has to be Jacob Marley. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I guess you know, that parallel jumped out at me. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm probably overreading it. It never occurred to me the other times I've read it, but this time, it just occurred to me. So, yeah. You two seem more skeptical <clears throat> no, I, than I am, then that's all right. Well, we haven't read it as many times either. You know, one of the one of the things about rereading is things do jump out at you. I mean, what you're saying makes mm-hmm. sense. It, it never would have occurred to me. All right, fair yeah. enough, fair enough. I'm actually less skeptical of that question now, having read it, than I was starting out. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, at any rate, you know, at the end of these episodes, uh, we always try to do some kind of takeaway. So, Grubs, it's time for you to speak prophetically to our show's resident pagan, and that's me. Uh, And I'll admit that when I think of Christmas, I mean, this is the story that always comes first into my head. 
Uh, and I realized that this is not the story of Advent. This is not the nativity. And I'm all right with that. I'm all right with this being a civic holiday that everyone observes, uh, even though some when it comes to how much money they spend. Uh, does this story marginalize Advent and the nativity? I think it does, and frankly, I don't care. Uh, now, David, does my double-mindedness about Christmas and Advent re- require confession of sins, or can I have my London and New York Christmas and my Bethlehem nativity? Ooh. All right, I am going to... I, I, I Well, having again, having read the text, I'm going to answer this question entirely differently than I thought I was going to answer it. Go for it. Um. Also, I'm going to grab one of the words you used, namely, does it marginalize, and ask, well, what are margins? Um, the margins are the empty space around the text that give it shape on the page. Um, the, I would say that the Advent and the Nativity are the margin that it, that that fills the space around the story. Um, and the interesting thing to me is that, that that seems to be the way that Christ keeps showing up in the story, which is as a as an empty space, as a space where Christ would fit if you get an illusion or if you translate a pronoun into a proper name. Um, it I mean, you know, as a, as a Christian, I read it's I, I can't read this as anything but a conversion story. Ah, OK. And so when I get to the end of it. Um, Scrooge is in bed and, and, you know, scrambles out of bed and he's, I I will live in the past, present, and the future, and the spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old old Jacob, on my knees. And, you know, in that moment, I'm like, that's where in any other kind of conversion story, which, you know, there were enough evangelicals, there were enough people in you know in Victorian England who believed in conversion and you know powerful dramatic conversion that that this would be the moment they would expect but this prayer is really unsatisfactory to me as an evangelical heaven and christmas time be praised for this what yeah weird um but it's almost almost the fact that you know a prayer occupies this space but it's not what i expect all right there there's there's a gap there and i feel that gap um Fred points to the gap also at the very beginning of the story. Yep. Um, Scrooge has asked Fred uh, whether or not he's ever gotten any good out of Christmas, by which Scrooge means you know any any money, any profit. Uh, and Fred answers, "There are many things from which I might have derived good, but which I have not profited. I dare say, um, Christmas among the rest. But I'm sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it has come round." Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from the or it can be apart from that, all right. As a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he talks about you know having goodwill towards men and being generous and and you know all those kinds of things. But th- it's that little bit in the dashes of I've always thought of Christmas time when it comes around. Apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that. I mean, uh, that little bit in the dash, that's the, that's the Jesus-shaped hole. Okay. Or, or rather, that's the nativity, the advent-shaped margin around the story. 
um i mean there's the uh, illusion in christmas future when little when when uh and and this again going to make it a i'm going to make it a conversion story it will become a conversion story i will make it so um <laughs> when Tiny Tim dies and the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come and Scrooge show up at the Cratchit house and the Cratchits are all very quiet and Scrooge hears someone reading. He thinks it's Peter reading a book and he hear he hears the the uh, the line and he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And that's it. And where had Scrooge heard these words? He had not dreamed them. The boy must have read them out. Um he, he he hears the words, but he doesn't actually see who reads them. Um, but again, the margin—it's uh, a, it's a gesture towards you know towards the towards the margin towards the frame of the story. Really, um, you have to know where that passage comes from. And he took a child and he set him in the midst of them. And then Christ says, "Unless you become like a little child, you will not see the kingdom of God." And that, interestingly enough, comes up again. Um, Scrooge, you know, after his unsatisfactory conversion prayer, says, I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. I'm quite a baby. Never mind. I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. And then he goes on from there. Mm -hmm. um, I have a really, really hard time not reading those things as related to each other. I have a really hard time not not seeing this as 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 connected and, but again, you know, I'm a Christian, and so all every one of these gestures that Dickens makes, you know, I keep, you know, I keep wanting to pull this, you know, this gestured to frame back into the story. Um, but and then he keeps doing things that make me feel like I'm doing it right. <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. Thoughts, Michael? What do you think? I mean, it makes sense to me. And, I, I mean, I was surprised the extent to which Christ is kind of lurking behind the scenes of this story, because I'd always thought of it as, as rather completely secular. Uh -huh. Then but, I'm not crazy. Thank no, you're, you're, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, just, I, saw jo I saw Jacob, so I, I can't say anything. <laughs> to, to some extent, this is a substitute, as, as Nathan suggests, for the nativity story, but I don't think it's completely so. Okay. Yeah. It's not Rudolph Fair the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh no, it's certainly not that. It's certainly not that. And I, you know, yeah. I, I, I guess you know, just because I love this story so much, and I mean, I, I'm a person who doesn't have much of a taste for Victorian fiction. I'll, I'll go ahead and admit that up front. Uh, but this story, this story, I keep coming back to. You know, like I said, really every couple of years I try to reread it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, David, that those. Those margins are there, and I like your your twist of the word margin. Um, <laughs> but you know, again, I, it, it's one of those things where you know, and I and I'll go ahead and pose this follow up question to you guys. I mean, I am personally, you know, not speaking for either of you two. Obviously, I'm all right having my Advent readings and hymns on the Sundays leading up to December twenty fifth but then also have my Charlie Brown Christmas special on TV on the weeknights leading up to the 25th. Personally, I mean, I'm all right to have those two worlds living side by side. I'm all right for my children to live in both of those worlds side by side. I know that there are people out there who want to 
get rid of one or the other. I mean, what do you guys think about the duality of it? I think we can all agree the important well, even thing Charlie. is that, that yeah. store clerks say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, even Charlie Brown has his Linus. You know. Oh sure. Well, and they um, and they re- and they read from the Gospel of Luke in that special. I realize. Yeah, uh, but uh, I, I guess the point that I would make is I, I think you can have both of them, but the, I think the reason why you can have both of them is that without the without the nativity story, uh-huh. these o- these other stories could not be possible. Okay. They're they're the they're the kind of story that the pagan world I don't think can tell on its own. All right. But but I think I think. I think you know the Christmas Carol can exist because Victorian England was, you know, if if not you know necessarily a culture completely composed of the best Christians ever, um, <laughs> at least a culture in which um, Dickens can can assume that his that his audience at large will be able to get. Um, a single line will be able to understand an allusion to a single line from the gospel in which no proper names are mentioned. Okay, fair enough. A Christ haunted anyway. society. Ooh. That's a great way to say it. That's uh, Flannery O'Connor. That's what she says about the South. Oh. <laughs> oh All right. I, I, I actually knew that, but <laughs> it's also very I fitting for what we're doing here, so. I, I was gonna. I, I, was gonna I, I just thought that was you, Michael. I was gonna be in awe for the rest of the day. Anyway. No, I'm not that clever. I, I was gonna. I was gonna say that modern Christians tend to forget how minor a ritual Christi- Christmas was for centuries and centuries. I mean, it's really not until the Victorian era that it's a big deal at all. It was against the law to celebrate it in Puritan New England. Um, it's a relatively minor festival in the church calendar. It's Easter that's the big deal, and that's the one we tend to not care as much right, about. Right. Because, you know, there's not as many secular celebrations around it, and the ones that are are incredibly lame. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I'm, I'm, completely, I'm completely fine with you c- uh, c- celebrating winter holiday and Advent, Nathan, um, because, because Christmas is not the real story. Uh, of the of the Christian Church, it's Easter that's that's the most important. All right, all right. That being said, I mean I like Winter Festival too. Oh yeah, yeah, the Christ Feast, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually had just a squirrely thought, and this will be my last follow up question, I promise. But uh, I I have wondered about the current Occupy Wall Street movement, and I know that some young evangelicals are getting in on it and trying to quote Amos and Hosea and Isaiah at these bankers and i sometimes wonder if it would be more effective rhetorically speaking to throw scrooge at him because scrooge gets to (laughs) remain a capitalist yeah he just can't be a jerk about it yeah (laughs) but yeah yeah, well yeah his heart is three sizes too small yeah well and also i mean it's just you know it's a lot closer to modern economic systems than the very agrarian systems that Amos and Hosea are critiquing. Now have the um, but anyway, that's, have the Occupy Wall Street people trotted out any children with disabilities in front of the bankers? I'm sure they have. I haven't been following that closely, <laughs> but they they have brought out two children called Ignorance and Want. 
I, I know, well, I know they, this they is not the subject of long art. enough to sing songs about poor lost children in the snow. There you go. I, I know this isn't the subject of our uh, of our of this episode, but I am so deeply conflicted about that movement that I just <laughs> I, I I feel uncomfortable when anybody says anything about it. Okay, I'm sorry, Michael. No, I, no, I didn't mean fine. to throw that on you in our Christmas episode. No, 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 no. Feel feel free. <laughs> feel free. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, thanks thanks to David Grubbs, thanks to Michael Farmer for a good conversation about Dickens. I encourage you listeners to go out and read A Christmas Carol. It is perhaps slightly lengthier than you might anticipate, but it's still a great little story. <laughs> it's what, 90 uh, Next mm-hmm. week's episode is actually going to be next month's episode, and I don't anticipate that either of you has a topic ready, although you could prove me wrong here. Grubbs, you're the one. No. <laughs> so so look on the blog, good listeners. We will let you know what our next full episode is. We do have a few, uh, how should I name them, Michael? Sub episodes coming up shortly. One featuring so- each of the three projects. of us. Solo projects. It's there like we go. That, it's like you can you should think of the rest of December as that year when Kiss put out four solo records instead of one Kiss album. Except hopefully uh, our uh, individual podcasts will be better than. Uh, the four kiss solo records there you go uh in the meantime good <laughs> listeners uh you can email us at the christian humanist at gmail.com you can find us on the web at christianhumanist.org. uh you can post on the forums you can get to us on itunes where you should leave reviews for us and give us ratings all of those things are good and helpful to us they help us to make a better show for you all to listen to in the meantime, uh, all three of us want to wish you a Merry Christmas out there in Internet world. And I will end with the words of Luther with which we always end. Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. 